0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us in this episode of CAFE, the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel podcast. In this installment, our host Margaret Cohen is joined by guests Y. Chi Dimick, Colin Milburn, and John Plotz to discuss the place of climate change in contemporary speculative fiction. Y. Chi Dimick is William Lampson Professor of English and American Studies at Yale University. Colin Milburn is the Gary Snyder Chair in Science and the Humanities at the University of California with appointments in English science and technology studies, and cinema and digital media. John Plotz is a professor of Victorian literature at Brandeis University and a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. This conversation was recorded on May 23, 2019, shortly before our guests gave papers in a panel titled Speculative Fictions, Possible Futures for the Planet. We're thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you. So thank you again for listening in as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves.
1: I'm hoping we can have a conversation about the role of narrative in climate change and our current debate about it. So as the French would say, sans être indiscret," what were you guys talking about at breakfast?
2: We were talking about uh, one conversation that I really liked about you when you were talking about people who are thinking about programs that merge together science departments Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. humanities departments. Yeah. Which I know it's something you like to write about. But so ways in which you could imagine yeah, teaching people how to write for the sciences or the earth sciences, I think, wasn't that the Right, or environmental environmental humanities. humanities, Yeah. But in a way that actually takes advantage of what humanities Yeah. I I mean
3: actually I think that in in some places Mm -hmm. it's been demonstrated, you know, in terms of enrollment that getting narrative into thinking about the environmental future um, is a great way to attract students. So this would be creative nonfiction. And students would be writing. They will, it would will be research-based. They have to learn a lot of facts about climate change and imagining what futures there might be for all of us. I mean, it is writing. There's no question about it. It's narrative writing. But it's, it's, it's completely dependent on some, A, the ability to do research, and uh, to discriminate among different kinds of evidence, and also to weave everything together into an interesting story. So it's great training for the students, you know, all around, and it's a great way for English departments to get into the act.
1: I'm wondering if you received a paper, or if there's one example of something that stands out for you in your um, work. That
3: I haven't, really you know, I was thinking of trying to do that, but I haven't done it myself in the college. One is just kind of a personal anecdote, you know, that I just heard from someone who taught a course um, using exactly the same method, um, and she said it would be different. But I think that at Illinois, I mean they actually have an environmental writing program that is a certificate program, and it's what's keeping the English department alive. It has a lot of uh, recognition among undergraduates because that's a program that they want to get into. It's a certificate program both for uh, undergrads and for grad students. So it really, it has lots of appeal uh, at different levels of teaching. And it's a great way to put English at the center of lots and lots of, you know, intellectual and institutional traffic.
4: It really does seem that these interdisciplinary programs that bring together the humanities and the sciences are increasingly popular mm-hmm. amongst students, not only environmental humanities, but medical humanities or mm-hmm. science and technology studies yeah. programs. I see students really flocking towards those programs because they they have a sense of the utility of having skills trained in the humanities, in the social sciences, in data analysis, yeah. in some quantitative skills that they can then have tremendous flexibility going forward, um, and of course they care about the future of the world as well, so these programs often appeal to a, a wide number of student concerns. Yeah,
3: and I think the public university is actually leading the way, I mean they're just that much more innovative, just to use mm-hmm. that magical mm-hmm. word, um, they're that much more innovative in thinking about ways that can speak to the students, to the parents, but also intellectually exciting, you know, I mean, it seems like something new the students can do
1: and and i and I also think what you said con that it's their future yeah. they I mean they feel very keenly that yeah. this is a problem that they need to be involved in and they need to solve. The
2: other aspect of it that I was thinking about, another thing we were talking about at breakfast, was about that where you see increases in numbers of humanities, it's often in the creative arts side. So, uh, to use another buzzword, content creation, they're less interested in analyzing the works of the past than they are figuring out the shape of what it is they're doing. And, I mean, my experience is teaching, like, a science fiction class or a fantasy class, the moment that you give them space to do their own thing, that's, you know, that's when all the eyes start sparkling. yeah. So how did that you know, how do we harness that energy? I mean, given that we're not going to turn it to creative writing departments, but how do we, you know, keep that content creation part as consistent with our mission to get people to think humanistically?
3: I mean, I think that maybe one way, and that's why, you know, I call myself a coward, because it did occur to me that the paper assignment, as it's currently constituted, might not be the best or Uh, maybe it shouldn't be the only way to educate students. So maybe instead of assigning three you know traditional yeah. papers we can assign two and then have one that is the creative nonfiction writing.
4: I talked to a historian of science who has them do podcasts essentially responses do you do this too? I also do podcasts I also yeah. sometimes give them the option to make games other video games or all right the yeah, as the yeah. Assignment. and I do find them responding in ways that we would call nonfiction, but in very uh-huh. creative right. fashions. Yeah. they're analyzing cultural materials, they're analyzing social and political issues, but in the form of a right. kind of creative multimedia framework, and that, that does seem to inspire them in ways that the traditional paper Yeah, I'm going to that try that.
3: Way. I was totally yeah. excited by that. Yeah. So is, is there a, a, a lab, IT lab at at Davis that would help students do the...
4: Yeah, at Davis yeah. we have, um, so I run a media lab called the mm-hmm. Mod Lab, and so we, through that lab, um, Provide services for students mm-hmm. um, in the courses that are run by the faculty and right. grad students affiliated with that program. Um, the university itself doesn't necessarily sponsor um, like a university-wide mm-hmm, service mm-hmm, center. Mm-hmm, I know mm-hmm. some universities do. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so at some campuses, I think that's probably easier to activate right. than others. Yeah. So
3: I mean, so is this this is funded by which department? I mean, how much funding
4: does um, it require? So. Funding in my case is often coming from external oh. research grants.
3: Well, that's interesting. Actually, maybe maybe yeah. we can talk about that.
4: I, yeah. I did
1: want to ask you about your melon
4: grant and oh, your yes. experience learning to code oh well thanks yeah, yeah. oh um,
1: that's wonderful
4: the, the mellon foundation offers this wonderful fellowship for um it seems to be primarily aimed at mid-career faculty um to read in the humanities to retrain in a, a different field in order to. i've, I've um, heard about yeah, that yeah 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 yeah, and, yeah. Um, so i've been working in digital humanities and critical code studies for a little while, but I'd been feeling, especially running this media lab, that a lot of the computer science students who were coming to work in the lab with me um, were operating at a Mm. a level that was just well beyond my capacity to Mm -hmm. be healthfully engaged with Mm. their work, so I thought I needed needed to go back to school, Mm -hmm. and so the the Mm -hmm. Melvin Foundation enabled uh, me to take a year of taking courses in computer science and Mm. learning um, much more than I had known before, and I... Yeah, Phil, I left that year feeling very, very confident in my capacities as a programmer and to be able to talk to mm-hmm. the graduate students and the undergrad students in the computer science fields.
3: You know, it's not uncommon now for literature professors actually to actually take a year off and get some kind of degree in computer science. I mean, I think that maybe Richard Jin So was. A- doing something similar what courses did you take in computer science I mean it seems like a year is a long time right I mean you should be yeah. learning a lot yes yeah
4: definitely. Um, in my case even though I had a little bit of basic um, coursework in computer yeah. science I actually did start again with some introductory courses just to sort of refresh my capacities and some of the computer languages that I had learned back when I was an undergraduate are not the ones that are standard um, mm-hmm. in a lot of the mm. curricula now mm. so that was also a reason to start with the the sequences as if, and I imagine myself as an undergraduate student mm-hmm, starting mm-hmm. off in computer huh. sciences. Mm-hmm. So really great. Three sequences, um, and having the luxury of being a lifelong student and learner, I was able to, I think, learn a little bit more rapidly than perhaps mm-hmm. um, a lot of undergraduates who are encountered for the hmm. first time. So I did by the So end of
3: you were in, in, in class with a lot of undergrads? I was in classes yeah. with undergrads. I yeah. also took
4: um, online courses. Yes. So, uh, which turned out to be uh, fantastic. Huh. I've always been rather skeptical of yeah. and online learning um, and I'm afraid I've had to eat my words a bit. Really? Huh. Of criticism That's Because many of those courses, at least when it comes to computer science, um, I think online learning works really, really well.
3: So can you talk a little bit about yeah, which classes? I'm, really I'm curious. Curious. Yeah, We might so, to take um, them.
4: So for example, in um, a lot of the, and this is, I think is true of a number of campuses many of the introductory courses are offered um, online, so mm-hmm. the students will register, they have a series of video lectures that are offered by the um, main instructor for the course, they have a textbook, there's usually an army of teaching assistants mm-hmm. who are available, in some cases around the clock, um, to help students virtually when they need um, help. But the students work through their assignments online, and when they do coding exercises online, the the courses are set up such that the grading and evaluation of the codes that students submit is um, evaluated automatically. And the system can um, look at the, the code that the student has submitted. And in the case of the courses I took, the system was designed to Help pinpoint areas where things might have not been working quite successfully huh? in the code, and never gave you the right answer immediately, but kind of suggested areas well, where you, as the student, needed to look to, to, to yeah. debug your code. And I felt it was a really great way of learning because it f- it helped guide you to figure out where you had right. gone wrong, and then in order to move on, you still had to, to learn what right. how to make it work correctly. So this is automated, yeah. right? It was, you said aut- it was largely
3: automated. automated.
4: So yeah. a, a, aside from the fact there were human teaching assistants somewhere in the back Wait, end so who that were able, was, able to answer questions, the rest of the course was completely automated. That must <laughs> wow. have been some incredible <laughs> software
3: that was able yes, to do that. Yes, yeah.
4: And I think that it it's not going to be the case for much more advanced um, algorithm research, but mm-hmm. it's certainly for kind of introductory courses and, and doing testing of code for errors and mm. bugs. Mm. Um, so was there a yeah. lecture component? Is there yes, like- but they're video lectures. Yeah. So yeah.
3: yeah. Because lectures yeah. are really the and emphasize, when, yes, right? Yeah. Exactly. do
4: you meet your classmates at all? I never met them in person. Mm. Yeah although but did I you often interact had conversations with them. With them. You did? Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. sometimes those were really wonderful learning experiences as well because of course I many of the students are struggling with the same yeah, yeah. questions. Yeah. And then yeah, they, you know you log on at midnight and there's 30,000 other students who are also logged on. Is it literally (laughs) 30,000? One of the classes I took had about 60,000 students enrolled from around the world. Wait, is this the Harvard one? No, it's not. This is the MIT one. It's free. Yeah. 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 uh, 60,000. And they're all available there to help each other. So, for 60,000. What is is the name of the course? This this one was called um, Introduction to Computational Studies computation and data structures hmm. using Python.
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is Python the language that you learn? That, yes. I, I yeah. learned Python, Python and C, C++, yeah.
4: C Sharp, um, and R were
3: the language of on. You know, you have to tell us more. Great to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So Python is a really useful first computer science language to learn because it um, is quite human-readable, but it's also very, very... Um, Technically efficacious, you can do a lot of very advanced things with uh, Python. But s- students who are still coming to grips with the formalisms of computer languages are able to get a grip on Python relatively quickly. So mm-hmm. and on, it's often taught now in many universities as um, as the the first language and for many um, programmers it remains a favorite language like for some very very advanced programmers they continue to use it Mm -hmm. for a huge number of applications throughout their career so can I take a step back and ask it like in terms of
2: how we think about like you talked about being initially really phobic about online classes and how to eat your words. I'm not yet at the word eating stage. Like I'm still <laughs> just phobic. So to to hear you know like it seems like there's a few different ways to think about this, and I'm wondering which is the best way. And one is the distinction I've heard made by people who look at something like the Khan Academy, which basically says that online mm. is good for anything understood as training. But to the extent that you actually hit education, like advanced algorithms, I heard you yeah. say, then you can't do online. So that's a model that just says this is basically, you know, the commodified labor of training instruction we can do, but the higher, classier sort of teaching. But but I, that's not exactly what I hear you right, saying. Because yeah. you're actually saying yeah. the algorithm.
4: Did a lot of the teaching it for did it. the algorithm yeah. Did a lot of yeah. teaching. Yeah. It's yeah. a better well, teacher it, in, in some it, sense. It was a yeah. very good teacher. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, I don't think that is transferable across all domains, and mm-hmm. I also don't. I think it's probably most strongly um, effective for introductory computer science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I do. Right. I do agree with that assessment. Yeah. That Training and education may, in fact, be somewhat different, and I am—I still remain skeptical that it can be adopted as a model for um, humanities writing instruction. I just am not convinced. Who knows? Maybe, maybe at some point, algorithms will be able to be very, very good writing trainers as well. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're quite there. Do we have a
2: professional deformation, which means we're always going to overestimate the humanist, like the amount of value we are adding to the classroom? Probably so. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, but but I want to hear more about the contents of what you learn. You know, I mean, how is Python? How would you rank Python in relation to the other languages that you mentioned? I mean, what are some of the disadvantages of Python that would make people want to turn to other languages?
4: So there are industry standard languages used for different um, different purposes, uh, and different platforms will often be pre-adapted to different languages. So mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. video game programmers who use Unity as the game mm-hmm, engine, mm-hmm. C-sharp is the language that you need uh, to use for okay. that. You can, there's ways yeah. of translating language one language, right, one right. language into another, yeah. um, but um, generally if you're writing in a way that right. all contributors can, um, that their functions are harmoniously meshing well. And then uh, some languages are well suited for some tasks um, better than others. So R, for example, is very, very uh, good for doing statistical work, for hmm. um, digital humanities work that's based upon sort of quantified uh, analysis of you know, text mining right. uh, text, data. Yeah, R, are R is a really good okay. language for doing huh. that, and it's also very quick and easy to, to learn how to use. Right. So, well, I take yeah. it that
3: you. N- Data mining might not be the primary focus for you, right? Oh, right? for me, yeah. no. I, yeah. I tend not to do
4: yeah. that work myself, yeah. although sometimes yeah. I'm interested in reading the scholarship. Right.
1: So, John, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. If you got a Mellon Grant and you could go back and or go and spend a year, oh my God, getting uh, educated in a really radically different discipline related to well, your research, what
2: would you do? So I have done two different things while I'm at Brandeis. is this great small place, so it's very easy to hop from lecture class to another. So I've I've sat in on neuroscience graduate classes, which mm. I love, not because I want to learn to be a neuroscientist, but I, I like. Learning how scientists think. Those are, those are basically right. journal club classes. But I think that's not a good answer for your question because I, there's no way either that I could learn enough. You would do basic that,
1: neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. And so the so the other type
2: of class that I sat in on is linguistics. So I think for me it would probably be linguistics. Why? Yeah. Uh, I mean, because I think of because I think of what I do as a form of aesthetic history, and I think I understand the history methodology. I feel pretty good about. But aesthetics seems to me rooted in aspects of language that i don't understand all the way down so i feel like i can understand how a line of poetry works like i may be okay on the semantics level but get below that and it becomes like a black box and i would like to know more
3: linguistics seems to be the spearheading a lot of um um kind of of empirical you know to extend that we still you know believe in that word uh, of empirical research in terms of um, just getting us to think more about languages that people think is being extinct. I've just done a, a new ed column on, on the contribution of linguistics to indigenous languages. Mm, and, wow, uh, yeah. and that actually is so important to, you know, thinking about the environment as well, because certainly Native Americans have been have been so important, you know, in getting us to think about the environment both in terms of the future but also in terms of the past and, you know, just the history of land use or even healthcare. So, you know, getting us to think about indigenous languages in, in from the, the perspective of difference linguistics difference is very, yeah. very different yeah. from very
1: thinking of it in terms of English. Yeah. yeah. It, you're reminding me of a of a conference I was at in Utah in February about the oceans, that was really mm-hmm. broadly interdisciplinary. And so there was a paper that was given about essentially the failure to bring together indigenous knowledge about the environment and contemporary science. That yeah. I found really yeah. interesting. It was by uh, a professor whose last name is Aiku. I have to look up her first name. Who uh, was teaching at the University of Hawaii, and um, she talked about bringing together um, someone who had Hawaiian knowledge of marine climate and marine science, Mm -hmm. a graduate student with someone working in, you know, 21st century Western paradigms and trying to see what they had to say to each other. And one of the, I thought, the most moving and like honest parts of her paper was it was really hard.
2: Yeah. Yes. Um,
1: and I kind of want to just put that on the table,
2: Margaret. I actually meant to ask you whether you've read Christina Thompson's new book, "See uh, C- C- People: The History you put of put Me and the What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course not. The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> it just came out.
2: But I loved it. It's yeah. amazing. But it's about that. It's about first of all, it's about Butler Library or Butler Museum, which is obviously in Hawaii, which yeah. is one of the hotbeds of putting those language, those different cultural encounters on the table. But it's also about you know cook. Cook had this friendship with this guy was his name my oh uh you know, Topia uh, uh, Topia yeah. right exactly and you know they made a chart together which people have been puzzling over ever since because it clearly contains some western ways of depicting the islands but other ways which polynesian, way polynesian ways of thinking right about sea currents and also where stars rise and fall but the map itself is virtually unreadable because it represents this collision of these two different modes mm, but mm. but there's a great chapter about linguistics as well but yeah about yeah what you're saying, what you, because all the polynesian languages right. are related to one another yeah, yeah. and you can make a kind of genetic trace right. of like you know, you can tell that people got to New Zealand last based on, like, linguistics. Yeah, or, yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Do, but, but, but
3: also I think yeah. that that's, that's a yeah. great repository for thinking about food. I mean, I think that one of the ways in which Indigenous studies is going forward is to link up with food studies. So at uh, University of Washington, uh, they, they, they seem to be emphasizing where indige- Indigenous language is really important. Um, uh, food sovereignty is, is an important aspect yeah, of that. Yeah. So that has lots of public health implications. And I think that, you know, just from the kind of attention that's given, you know, to uh, the sous chef, you know, just alternative to ways of celebrating Thanksgiving uh, or just thinking about the human-non-human interaction in terms of how we think about food, um, you know, both the economy of food, uh, but also the ecology of food. So that would be one way in which... Indigenous studies can be degatherized. I mean, you know, I don't think that it's a good way to go forward thinking that, okay, only Native Americans would care about Indigenous studies. I yeah. mean, you know, it really
1: should be something that everyone should care about. So. I guess I, I want to come back to the question of difficulty, though, of right. you know, talking across yeah. the science-humanistic or anthropological divide, because it's a really hard divide to cross, and Maybe our current moment with the way in which a narrative is so involved in climate change Mm. gives us an opportunity to reach out and speak with scientists in a way that 30 or 40 years ago may have not interested the scientists. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you've had experience with that and could talk a little bit about impasses and Mm -hmm. potential ways forward. Well, can I
2: just say really quickly in terms of the timing of it? I just think, like Colin, I was reading it, one of your chapters recently, and you talk about these early hackers who are reading the EE e. Doc Smith, is that right? Yes, the, that's those true. sort of space opera sci fi, the lensmen. Lens- Lens- and I was thinking, right. so that's probably 40 years ago, but there's an even longer tradition where science fiction. And you know, science fiction it's is true. something that scientists yeah. like Fred Hoyle, right? Francis, they they you know. definitely yeah yeah. yeah. So yeah. so I actually one of the reasons I like science fiction is that it doesn't seem to me necessarily just at the present moment, but that like throughout the history of science fiction, it's been a kind of complicated, messy. It's a contact zone, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely um, in that, is. Yeah. In the sense of that, yeah. that you know, the Mary Louise Pratt notion That's of like the site of yeah. Um, yeah. confluence. So you get a lot of messy. You get a lot of bad experiments. You get a lot of failures. You get a lot of things that are like Olaf Stapleton that people loved at the moment and then disappear again. But yeah. you also get Frankenstein or, or H.G. Wells where there's clearly, you know, I mean, it's very important, I think, that Wells was one of the first students of Huxley at yes. the right. museum yeah. school yeah. in Kensington yeah. in the 1870s. Yeah. So that's not just pure coincidence. Like, those are, those are spaces that open yeah, up possibilities. Yeah, yeah.
3: Absolutely. Uh, I happened to mention to my downstairs neighbor, um, who is a software engineer at Google. Anyway, so I mentioned that I'm going to talk about the three-body problem. And yeah. it turns out that he has heard of the book. I mean, he just haven't, he hasn't read it. But there was this discussion, actually. There was a lunch thing, apparently, at Google about this book. And they have a whole speaker series of inviting authors to come and talk about the books. And this would be the book that they'll be talking about. So I I think that, um, you know, sci-fi absolutely is the one, is is a really key contact zone between humanists and non-humanists. In fact, I think that Stanford can really spearhead this, you know, and get in touch with Silicon Valley and just to team up with them, just to make sure that, you know, we have some kind of partnership. I think that in terms of university administrations, we one way to demonstrate to them that you know we're actually thinking in terms of partnerships. Because I think that the the currency is innovation and partnership. Yes. So,
1: have you done a PMLA column on this? I haven't. You should. I haven't.
3: I, I'm thinking of doing one. Yeah. Um, I did do one on on the data refuge movement at Penn, which is led by librarians uh, who want to save climate data. So that was featured by all media. I mean, it was Washington Post, everything, New York Times, everything, Y Magazine, major article. And it was bringing together uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, librarians from Penn, lots of li- librarians from Toronto as well, which seems to be a really important hub for this kind of thing. And plus all the people capable of doing online archiving, Archiving because uh, what happened was that they were afraid that the Trump administration was just going to go ahead and make the EPA erase a lot of important climate data. Yeah. Uh, so it's really important to make a copy of the available web pages uh, the scientists consider important. And it is not the kind of archiving that we're equipped to do, right? Because yeah. you need to, yeah. to be able to do online archiving. Yeah. So it's primarily librarians who have some kind of technical training who would be able to do that, and plus, you know, whoever is willing to learn, you know. I mean, it really takes some kind of self-education, new kind of education, um, to be able to do this kind of work. But this is one very concrete area where, once again, humanists and scientists will be working side by side.
4: And in relation to that kind of work, archiving of data or data science in general, this is an area where humanists and literary scholars in particular, I think, can contribute a lot and to help scientists who often are looking for this kind of collaboration. There's a recent, semi-recent field called data storytelling within Mm. the data sciences that has emerged. It's a pen, too, right? Yeah, it's it's spreading as a concept. And the idea often coming down to that data doesn't Mm. speak for itself and that um, data always needs to be communicated effectively amongst peers in the research field as well as to broader public constituencies. And so data storytelling is a way of emphasizing the the notion that, that narratives are the things that convey meaningfulness um, to to data and that make data communicable, mm-hmm. that make data impactful in the world and Oops. who better knows how to talk about narratives than writers? Yeah. So I, I
2: get that idea and I like it and I'm in favor of it and all that but I, the thing that is interesting to me talking to scientists is that is that most people that you talk to in that context understand that as a communicating to the public question, whereas to me, when you think about the work of somebody like Edward Tufte, it's actually Mm. not just about the outward-facing presentation of the results. It's that actually like in your poster sessions, for example, which scientists do all the time, that actually putting together the narrative, I don't know, in-house, I guess is the right word, you know, when you're still talking to the group, not the audience, like you're still in the phase of working through the problem. Like in other words, you need a conception of narrativity that isn't just... Um, PRing right, and right. Yes. Yeah, like so, yeah. yeah, it's a conceptual tool. Yeah, it's a conceptual tool, right? I mean, it's it's, just, an, it, it's, it's, it's yeah. formative assessment, yeah. right. rather than being presentation, or presentation yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it helps. should theoretically it should, yeah. Theoretically, yeah. It should yeah. help yeah.
3: scientists yeah. think yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, right. yeah, To have a critical yeah. perspective yeah. of yeah. their own data, and I, yeah. I do yeah.
4: think that is in emerging in some areas within data storytelling, particularly when there's a kind of critical data studies perspective that's entailed. Yeah, that exactly as you say, the sort of inward facing aspect of analyzing and communicating data amongst one's right. own research peers and thinking about the transformation of so-called raw data into meaningful data is a is a non uh, it's a process that has uh, social dimensions to it Totally. Yeah. And, and understanding those social dimensions and being able to say where data comes from why was this data gathered for what purposes what was the uh, set of parameters that enabled this data to uh, be collected as as a database, those questions have often been elided or occluded in thinking about uh, data communication, but good, responsible data storytelling, I think, tries to grapple with some of those.
3: Right. I mean, and also some specific stories that, you know, I mean, for instance, the geology is tough. I mean, I think that evolutionary biology and geology, I mean, those sciences, they're almost committed to narrative (laughs) by definition I mean, for those sciences, um, it really is important, you know, to be able to tell a, a story well, right? So, I mean, there are certain concepts. Uh, what is the one that Stephen Jay could uh, uh, punctuate the equilibrium? Green, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you really need that kind of two-word summarizable narrative that is going to stick to my head. You know, nothing else would stick to my head. Um, well, I think that for some geologists, this is a story called Snowball Earth. Once again, it it tells a particular story. I mean, I don't think the scientists are really doing a good enough job telling stories about climate change right now. I mean, that's why we're in the situation that we are in and now. I think that's why yeah. They recognize I mean, so I think that this is really, you know, theory. scientists definitely need some training. But I think the humanists can also help tell those stories yeah. but like, too. Okay.
2: So I have an interesting anecdote about this. But I have a colleague a guy named Gail McGill who runs something called the Data Visualization Project Mm -hmm. at at Harvard. And he had... Well, he had a complicated background, but he actually was running an independent private company which did data visualization. And so what they did was things like, you know, they would make for the Museum of Science a film that would take the data of what happens at a cell membrane when a molecule Mm -hmm. passes in, and they would present it in a way that, you know, child audiences at the Museum of Science Mm -hmm. could work. And that's how they got their money. But... What they're really invested in is using data visualization in the process of coming up with the paradigms while doing science. But there's a sort of bait and switch there, where in order to make it attractive, you have to talk about it as kind of National Science Foundation wants you to do outreach.
1: Yes. -hmm. What they really
2: want is to be able to take, you know, if you could show what the membrane of a cell looks like at the moment that a molecule passes through it, that's incredibly helpful as you're doing the science. Yeah.
3: Some public libraries are doing that. Um, the Boston Public Library, yeah. actually, I uh, had a, a data visualization panel. I mean, I didn't oh, really? I, I didn't get I didn't to go, go. there, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah. I got an email notification yeah. about that. And it was probably, you know, just to educate the public, you know, using visual tools to get them to see exactly what climate change would do. Yeah. Uh, and it just seemed to me that, that you know... I mean, I, I do think that libraries are really crucial um, in this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think that lots of, both in terms of, you know, just, just libraries as a place where disadvantaged people can have access to the internet, but also just for education, ongoing education for everyone else. And I was wondering
1: if, you know, is Stanford is doing any kind of outreach, you know, in terms of using the library. I think it's very complicated you know it's an educated community and it's also a community which does some outreach but the outreach is often done in more traditional ways Mm. it's a strange aspect of silicon valley yeah that silicon valley invests a lot in blue chip old-fashioned values when it comes to here i'm kind of going to go off into a rant so i should stop myself but but i feel that that there's a certain... Um,
2: it's a podcast, man. Yeah. You're supposed to right. rant. Yeah, There would be no podcast if yeah. they weren't all, <laughs> Okay. We're going to edit out the spittle. We're going to edit mean, out the... <laughs> <rant>.
1: The problem <laughs> with Silicon Valley is that all the engineers who are creating, like, the kind of new, innovative technologies are all bound up in that during the day and yeah. fighting the wars over how to, like, create them and in the intellectual right. property yeah. and all that. And that, at night, they want to go and like, have the assurance oh, of, yeah. Yeah. Um, right, you know, yeah.
2: blue-chip culture, Blue chip culture. Yeah, and yeah. they
1: can't both, like, be yeah. fighting, you know, to get resources and for all the innovations, right. and at the same time, be doing this more aesthetic right, form right, of right. work, yeah. so yeah. it's a very strange, a strange place, place in that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah, I
3: mean, I, I don't think that, actually, I don't think Stanford would, I mean, I think that it's actually public libraries, you know, most like Boston Public Boston, Library, yeah. or Cambridge Public Library, for yeah. that matter, uh, they do a lot of outreach uh so uh, in fact, you know, I think the Cambridge Public Library is teaming up with MIT. Although I, basically, it's K to twelve education, but making sure that they're shaping, you know, the,
2: the younger generation. Do you know yeah. what the National Humanities Center is doing about that these days? Because I feel like in the back in the day they did a yeah. lot, you know, with curriculum design. They were right. very innovative yeah. with web-based right. American history. Yeah. From below. Right. Curriculum design. Yeah. I, well, think I don't
3: know if they've gone for I, I I so I did look up <laughs> to see yeah. some of the grant recipients because yeah. I'm curious who's getting the NEH yeah. grants. Yeah. And what they've done, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I've heard many stories that it's very hard for people from elite institutions to get the NEH grants, not so much fellowships with grants, project grants. So I was curious to see, you know, who is getting the grants, and yeah. it turns out that lots of community colleges That's awesome. and also tribal colleges. Okay. Um, yeah. So the Standing yeah. Rock Sioux College yeah. was getting a grant, and what are they doing? And um, it was linguistics. I mean, you oh, should wow. go to that. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, and yeah. there was another That's one. Really oh, Pawnee, Pawnee Nation. Mm. They also got a grant. So it's really, I mean, I think it's very targeted. Plus, you know, also. They, they like collaborative projects, so yes. if you have several s- schools teaming up, liberal arts colleges, they tend to give to those, you know, people, schools that are not resource rich, which I can totally understand. I mean, so Berkeley got one, yeah, uh, but it's, it's about the only named school. Yep. Berkeley and Virginia got grants, but I would say most schools like I me, mean, I don't see, oh, Stanford got one. Stanford got one. It was some kind of medieval global medievalism. Oh, that's, that's our entrepreneurial medievalism. Right. Okay, they yeah, so I them saw them that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stanford got <laughs> one, um, but I don't see Princeton or Yale or any other. So, you that's know, I mean, those yeah. schools
2: get anything. I mean, public libraries are definitely at a scary moment, right? Because public libraries have some of the same problems that like undergraduate libraries yeah. have, but they can be emptied out. I mean, you yeah. can go to some public libraries and there's virtually no books yeah. in them because yes. they've decided. Community center is the model. So yeah. the, the thing you're describing is so Exc- inspiring. Yeah. Because right. it gives the archival side of the of the research scholarship project back to the public library. Yeah. Right? yeah Which yeah, really is because they've been just collection of be- they, they they run the risk of turning into just collections of terminals and best right sellers, right right. They I think makes that them something more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. I
3: mean, I think yeah. they are transforming
2: education. Yeah. In a really yeah. Yeah. Way. yeah. But they kind yeah. of have to. I they mean, have to. So
3: on um, this morning, I just heard an NPR. I mean, apparently. Free community uh, college education is something that has been done in Georgia. I mean, that this is not Bernie Sanders' idea. This is a mm. different kind, right? Mm. And it's been implemented already. So, you know, if that could be... If just, you know, computer literacy and climate literacy could be yeah. made into a key part of community college education. And in fact, that has been done in Massachusetts. Yeah. Bunker Hill Community College... Yeah. Has a really thoroughgoing com- wow. climate education program. I love Bunker Yeah, wow. they're the ones Hill, who give yeah. credit
2: for the in cl- in prison education. In yeah, yeah, Bunker yeah. Hill. The credits get right. They, they're Hill. doing they're
3: incredible. Great. Yeah, they're I was great. thinking of doing a feature on them. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's really. I mean, if that is the model, but the lots of other. I mean, so in California, it's not the it's not the University of California, but the Cal State, Cal State uh, that, is, yeah. that is doing a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and then community colleges everywhere.
2: Wait, Margaret, can I come back to your rant for a second? Because that is really provocative. You're, so if I understand your point, the point is that like, while they're busily, creatively destroying in the internet space from 9 to 5 or 9 to 11 p.m. or whatever, right. and then they when they come, come home, they just want culture to play it safe. Yes. They want armchair art, more or less. <clears throat> so then maybe the challenge is, I mean, to go back to why I love science fiction, then the challenge is, is there a way... To convince people in the world of science and technology that culture is not that other thing over there that represents a safe armchair for them, but it's actually like a. I think science fiction
1: smuggles it in. Yeah. And so what you're making me think is that maybe to have like a center or some sort of an outreach series on science fiction would be a really great way to try to.
2: You guys know how the Martian, that Andy Weir book, was crowdsourced basically? Like he put it up. Like, if you described the process that you arrived at with The Martian, you would think it was an Ulipo experiment, mm-hmm. right? Like, he writes a draft, he puts it up, people shoot holes in it for various ways, mm-hmm. and he modifies it. Maybe, Colin, you know more about the process than I do. Yeah, you, I teach a know well, you teach a sci-fi course, yeah, right? that's yeah, I mean, the
3: yeah. extent I know about yeah, the yeah, process. Yeah. Yeah. So in
4: other words, that's
2: actually, like, a mm-hmm. very unusual way of writing a novel, yeah, and it yeah. only worked because of all these dweeby scientists who yeah, love right. Fiction yeah. fiction. Yeah. Yeah. No, you to, guys
3: should have a science sci- fiction. Website as
2: well.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That would be really. Yeah. yeah. And you're all going to help that's me curate. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, I mean fandoms Yeah. Were invented for sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like
2: the twenties and the thirties. Yeah. Sci-fi. No, I mean
3: I scientists probably, so. are the perfect. You know, they are the perfect fans. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay.
4: Teach science fiction class that has about two hundred students in it each time, and yeah. more than half of the students are. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's been my experience too. More seventy-five
2: yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is such a, a great appetizer for later. <laughs> but I have a question I really want to make sure we talk about just quickly. What about collaboration in the humanities? Are we done with the like original genius single author of the monograph? or And, and should we move on and be involved in teams and give this up?
4: definitely I feel we're in a transitional moment here I love collaborating and I work on teams Um, nevertheless I still mostly publish single authored Mm -hmm. publications even though so much of the research I do now is with my graduate students is with colleagues from other departments Um, I'm on so many grants with colleagues from other departments but in the in the end there's still this kind of institutional pressure and often when I talk to In the humanities we're never entirely sure exactly where it's coming from so some of it is very much self-imposed but certainly from my own sense of pleasure as a researcher i enjoy the collaboration much more than the single
3: yeah i did have one kind of big and sustained collaboration with grad students but this is putting together an anthology that is easier than writing because you know when it comes to so my American literature the world anthology, it's not selling well at all. You know, partly because it's of the particular kind of authorship, but it was so maybe it's more important just doing it. You know, that I learn more from the process. Mm. The outcome is is not going to be profitable. Yes. But we made basically made all the decisions about the selections collectively. Every one of us voted for every single. Item included in the anthology. Uh-huh. Um, I did the intro, I have to confess, I did that. Uh, it was easier that way. But everything else was collectively done, and I'm very happy to say that of the four students, actually three grad students and one undergrad. So, of the three grad students, one is an assistant professor at Chicago, one has been uh, a Histon Lit uh, instructor at Harvard, mm-hmm. he just got a tenure track job uh, at Kentucky. One is has just gotten his PhD, so he's going to be a postdoc at Dartmouth. And the undergrad, uh, who is an economics major, he has been working for McKinsey. I mean, he was actually there as an intern before he graduated and has been working for McKinsey. So, I mean, I think that for them, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't take credit, you know, for all the good results, that you know, good things that are... Happening to them, but nonetheless, it seems interesting that you know they all went on from that project and things worked out for them it in didn't one hurt way or them another. Yeah, it, it didn't hurt them. Definitely way. did not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that just kind of going off novel in a, a slightly different tangent. Um, I think that some companies are hiring on the basis of the kind of the wide ranging expertise uh, of the applicants. Yes. So um, you know, I one undergrad, and he's I mean he's very unusual in the sense that he's been writing for the New Yorker ever since he was um, a freshman. So you know, this is definitely it's not a generalizable case, but at the first at the outset when he first applied, the first year that he applied to jobs. He applied, you know, to uh, all kinds of things like TripAdvisor. He didn't get a job with TripAdvisor. He got a job with Microsoft. They flew him out. They, you know, so it was very intense. It was a one-day interview. He was brought out and he was offered the job on the basis of the fact that he was a double major, I think. I mean, you know, he, he, he said that for most other companies, that was not an asset for Microsoft, it probably was. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it, and, and now, you know, he basically is guaranteed a job at Microsoft if he wants to go back. So I, I, I think that, that in one way or another, having some kind of humanities component in the education of a software engineer or whatever uh, is definitely a plus at this point.
2: So I, I, this is totally consistent with what you guys said, but I want to take a different spin yeah. on it, which is like in terms of whether we're at a transitional moment or not. So I, at Brandis is great because it's yeah. a small place. I spend a lot of time with the scientists and the social scientists, especially the physical scientists, the biologists, right. the neuroscientists, yeah. the physicists, they just collaborate in ways that I mm. really admire and we've worked hard to kind of emulate that in the humanities. So yeah. We, uh, I've had a couple of different sort of innovation groups that mm-hmm. talk together, and while that, I love the fact that we partially import yeah. those models it does seem to me there's something about the humanities that does still reward individual work. Yeah, and, no, like, what you were describing, right, the distinction yeah. between the moment of assembling the pieces versus, say, writing an introduction. Right, like, yeah. Like, I just don't think... We, there's a baby in bathwater issue, yeah. you know? Like Because when I talked to the scientists, I had a friend, Gina Terugiano, come talk at a conference about creativity that we did at the Radcliffe, And she was saying, you know, I'm there because I think of English professors as people who know how to go off and write things on their own. And like, as a scientist, I want to make sure I remember how to do that too because so Mm -hmm. much of what I do done in the team. I yeah. just think we shouldn't... Yeah. Yes, collaboration, but collaboration for part the parts that reward it. Right, and yeah. Then, and then, uh, you know, there's there's something... I don't know. When you go to a party, you can tell the English professors are different from the scientists. Right, yeah. it's Not just because they're awkward and stand in the corner. No, there's no, no. like a the deep yeah, thought thing yeah. going I on, I think that writing you know? it's like, is it's a very yeah, individual thing. It's a very, it's very hard. Yeah, thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying you can't get away from it. Yeah. But let's not... Stigmatize the people who are just good at going off and writing. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, absolutely. Absolutely. At the same time, I did notice that a lot of the submissions to PMLA are actually the written. Interesting. I mean, there really is a kind of interesting. Yeah. Shift. Yeah. 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 Well, it
2: just seems like it's it's there's no downside to putting pressure on the model and encouraging people to do things yeah. more jointly. But I would be surprised mm. if the result of that is the yeah. individual right Yeah. Goes away I mean, I think that Richard Ginso
3: that I just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think that he does all
2: his work collaboratively. collaboratively yeah. yeah. And
3: quite often with grad students as well. I mean, which seems really admirable. Yeah. way of, you know... Uh, and, and I think that in his case, is because... I mean, he, so he uses different kind of corpora for the kind of... the novel data. I mean, it's not, not unlike the lab being done yeah. here. So for the kind of corpora that he needs to consult. I mean, some of them are actually at other schools. So, you know, he would collaborate yeah. with whoever it is at that school and then jointly write a paper. Yeah. Um, and so we are going to publish one and I can't remember the, you know, it just goes to show that Pamela is really anonymous. So, fact, I'm blanking out the name of the other author. Yeah. But anyway, it's a very successful instance of somebody, uh, because it's, it has been accepted, I can say this. Uh, so it was anonymously submitted. We didn't know that it was written by two people because they refer them to themselves as we. Um, and it was actually turned back with returned to them for revised and resubmit. So for me, that actually was the test because, you know, you can start off um, two people working together uh, at the first round, but the next round revision actually is really important. And whether two people can work well together, I mean, I think that actually is the real test and they were able yeah. to pass that test but, you know
2: that raises a really interesting question which is that collective authorship in the sciences is actually a little bit different in its meaning from that's what right. we talk about writing together because lots of those collectively authored science papers that just means somebody contributed the data somebody contributed right. the serum sample somebody is the right. chief but it yeah. could be written by one person yeah. Actually, so no, I mean authorship is much it's, more it's, complicated it's a much higher yeah. bar activity yeah. 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 Um, yeah. but
3: if we can yeah. if that's a high bar that we can meet yeah. you know, it says a lot yeah. about us too mm
4: in that regard the science model of having multiple authors where different people may have contributed things besides the direct writing part. right certain journals require that there is an acknowledgement of their contribution to the, the in the sciences or their contribution to the writing of the article, but that general model I think it is helpful for the humanities for us to be able to acknowledge as scholars the kind of debts that we owe to other contributors uh, to our research, to yeah. graduate students or others who may sometimes be left out of authorship, Yeah, funds, you know, yeah. they may have right. contributed significantly right. to right. research or thinking. So yeah. um, to be able to have a flexible... Author byline um, to acknowledge right. these kind of yeah. It's actually
2: yeah. such a helpful way of thinking about how you know. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that acknowledgments is often the first thing I read in a book. But and you feel slightly guilty because it feels a little personal. But actually, the acknowledgments page is in a sense an it's extension the of the off- author. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think that grad students yeah. need more than just the acknowledgement no, too. No, they I need agree. just no, name no, no, no. The names, the names up yeah. right yeah. up there. The point yeah. is that if you could think about those those two sections as having more flu relationship yeah yeah yeah
3: yeah Yeah. and i think that you know students are very i mean grad students are in a way i mean they are more tech savvy than Mm. the rest of us i mean i'm you know i don't think that we should think that we're always in the position to teach you know our students i mean quite often students know more than we do i mean so this would be one place for them to showcase the the skills that we don't have
4: yeah Yeah. one of the projects that might media lab the mod lab team put together was a, a video game for shakespeare and performance called play the knave and so we had computer science students who were involved we had english literature students involved we had historians of science involved um and so the game exists and it's being used in a variety of schools for education and then a number of um, research publications have come out that mm. have been co-authored mm-hmm. and the first author has been um, my colleague gina bloom who's a shakespeare oh I, I, i've heard of her uh, yes, yes yeah. yes she's well known um Early modernist, uh, but she, the students who contributed the programming to the game are named as co-authors on those publications mm-hmm. as well yep. because no yeah. research could yes. exist without
1: yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Has a, it's a way also to bring back older periods, mm. which for a while I think mm-hmm. we were afraid that were being lost. Right. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about the entrepreneurial medievalists or mm. right. you know Shakespeare and yes. you know digital that somehow this makes come alive. I think so.
3: I think that, you know, early modern and medieval really coming alive, you know, with a new kind of, you know, new uses of archives, you know, and then new ways to make those archives accessible uh, and, and just making them interesting. So what is that yeah, what is so the,
4: the game is a 3d motion capture game yeah. that requires players to essentially put on a performance of different scenes from uh-huh. shakespeare and the point right. of the game is to understand how uh, changes in performance changes in staging etc can mm. affect the meaning of the wow mm. yeah that's text. perfect yeah it's now in a pilot program where we're sending it around to um, high schools around the country and, mm. and um, also some colleges but um High schools often don't have funding to be able to buy the equipment, so we got a small grant um, at UC Davis to be able to buy kits to to be able to ship out free of charge for, Wait, to Wait, so to this loan is to totally portable? Yeah, it's portable. So we essentially the kit is a computer plus a Kinect three D camera with the uh-huh. software loaded. Oh, uh-huh. okay. We ship it to them, and then they can do their exercises in class, and right. they ship it back to us when they're they're done.
3: They ship it back to you to do what?
4: Um, then we ship it on to the next school.
3: Oh, okay, yeah. okay. But so be, you 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 just have one version of this thing that's passed around most yeah, schools. Have, yeah, well, we have
4: a few dozen computers at right. this point, but um, this is it's not a tremendously scalable model mm-hmm. without more funding. But it was one thing that we were able yeah. to figure out relative to so many high schools that were contacting mm-hmm. us, wanting mm-hmm. this as a tool for teaching Shakespeare in their classes, but mm-hmm. not being able to mm-hmm. um, afford the hardware. The yeah. right.
1: Thank you for this amazing conversation.
0: thank you again for joining us in this episode of the center for the study of the novel's podcast cafe we would also like to thank Y chi dimmick colin milburn and john Plotz for their generosity in agreeing to this conversation thanks to our team at the center for the study of the novel to an chuang nguyen and maritza colon for their operational support to our graduate coordinators victoria zarita cynthia giancotti and casey patterson to eric fredner for editing consultation and sound engineering and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English department at Stanford University.